Hello, Adulting Well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor. And what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show. So you can see, you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So, for instance, we can have polls. We can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that. And we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just uh, that's just one example. But there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh, this is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, And if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, Thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Adulting Well Podcast. I am your co-host, Joshua, and I am joined, as always, by Kevin. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Joshua. And we have Chuck Goshert on tonight, and I'm going to just probably launch right in as quickly as I can. (laughs) Um, When Black Athletes drummer Rob Haight took Chuck to see Black Flag at the farm in 1984, he knew he'd found a home in the punk scene. In 1986, he started Poultry Magic with Benicia High School pals Paul Curran, who some of you may know, Cliff Helmholtz, and Scott Pelkey. Uh, he lived in the East. He lived the East Bay punk dream of playing Gilman for the first time in 87, 1987. Uh, through the 80s and 90s, he went on to start or join a number of bands, including early lookout band Monsula, worked security, live sound, and the store at Gilman, and finally finished college after seven years. Are I you sure also- it wasn't 1887? I'm going. <laughs> I'm going to note as well that he was in one of my bands at that time, Siren. Um, he moved to Indiana to get a PhD in literature and philosophy, and since 2001, he's been an English professor at Utah Valley University, teaching courses in critical theory, cultural studies, U.S. literature, LGBTQ literature, and culture. His scholarly writing focuses on connecting experimental art with radical politics in Asian American and LGBTQ literature and culture. Um, and on teaching research writing, which he has written a couple books on, or a second book that's coming out, beginning for beginning college students. He occasionally writes about punk history and culture for academic audiences, including 2020 article about Gilman's early years, which Paul Kern called maybe the only academic thing about punk that I've ever been able to get on board with. Damn. <laughs> it's actually a great quote. Along the way, he continued to play music, somehow ending up in the right places at the right times. Indiana for the Midwest emo explosion of the late 1990s, then in Salt Lake City for its post-hardcore breakout in the early The Forrest Gump of punk rock. Hey, man. Keep running. Academia will take you everywhere. Uh, He started American Ma with Yours Truly in 2017, and we played our first show in late 2019 and early 2020, just in time for COVID. So I know that's a lot, but yeah. you know what? We've also known each other a long time. I'm super glad we're finally doing this after three seasons and you being in our first recordings. Uh, so welcome, Chuck. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm really stoked to be here. So thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. And yeah, we've got, I guess we've got a lot, of, a lot of years to catch up on. <laughs> Just a few. So, you know, and that's, it's funny because we've circled back and are doing a new project together. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I've been sort of getting Facebook and uh, Instagram blasted since we posted the episode from people that you knew early on that either lived in Benicia or adjacent. And, you know, people are making jokes about, you know, what they put in your drink and all kinds of, of other stuff, of course. Yeah. There, there's got, there's gotta be some go-to jokes, right. That are, I don't know if you call it like the low hanging fruit jokes that are all <laughs> uh, like activate all this history for all of us. Yep. So I will say that uh, that Jesse Townley and Scott Pelkey have been enjoying themselves. Um, <laughs> so uh, is this just, this means like I got to get on Facebook one of these days, right? I got to yeah, find out about just, what, what all the kids are talking about. 
<laughs> I can screenshot and send you some of the stuff. Okay. Um, but um, I guess, you know, we covered it in the bio briefly, but talk a little bit about your introduction to punk and living, especially in a town like Benicia that was connected yet disconnected from like yeah. the, the very busy scenes and especially in, in San Francisco at that time. Yeah, it's it's weird, right? Like like one of the first I was I was thinking back about, you know, like like that first show going to Black Flag in 84. And I know you and I have talked about in the past is that that whole experience of running the gauntlet of skinheads to get through the park and get, you know, get to this like bizarre urban farm that somehow grew up in, you know, this in, in this uh, uh, loop of a freeway exit, you know, in San Francisco. And just that, that whole, that whole experience just blew my mind. And I, I didn't understand it, but I knew there was something about it that I had to get more of. And it's funny that, that as I've been thinking about those early experiences of going to shows, and I think the, I think the second show I went to was Suicidal Tendencies at Ruthie's in Berkeley. And the more I started putting those early shows together, Benicia became a part of it, at least because I started wondering, I know I got to those shows with that crappy little commuter bus that started up in about 80, 84 or something in Benicia that could get you to the BART station. But I have no idea how I got home from any of those shows, right? Because they all got out, you know, they're, you know, one, two, two, three in the morning. It's just like, yeah, I was, you know, 15, 16 years old and, you know, how to, how to get back to Benicia. That from is there. fascinating because, to me. Because it is so disconnected, right? It's like, you can get to Pleasant Hill, but how do you right. how do you get across the bay to get home? I must there's have a similar I was, connection. I was real, to, I was real I think, motivated. Sorry, Josh, what's that? Yeah, no, there's just a, such a similar connection to like being growing up in like Santa Rosa or something. Because mm-hmm. when I was 15, I started hitchhiking to Gilman, and I have so many memories of that. But again, how did I? Where did I stay? How did like where <laughs> right. did I go? How did I get home? When did I go home? I don't know. Right. One of the first things I always did when I got to shows far away was that was find my ride home. You know, it was like, it was like the sort of like, okay, get in the club without getting beat up by a skinhead. Right. And and then once you're in, find your ride home. Cause you know, you're going to miss all public transportation at that point. Right. Okay. So here, here's the one, here's the one variable I can't account for then because had I been more outgoing or at least if I, if I see myself as being more outgoing, of course, that's what a, that's what a sane person would have done. But I was so I was so painfully shy at the time. I don't really remember really like making those personal connections with people until more like the Gilman years. And and so, yeah, I think, I think you guys are right. There was probably like some way that people, you know, cause you know, remember also there's so many like older folks in the, in the scene. What I assume was there were more people looking out for each other and it probably didn't take me having to be the person who did the outreach to find those, find those connections and find those rights. So. Yeah. Well, and so you also have a, a brother that, that was in bands as well. Did you go to shows together? Was that. Kev. Hmm. You're good now. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Do you want, do you want to reset the question or. Yeah, well, can you? yeah, I was just asking about, you know, you have a, a brother, Mike, who also mm-hmm. was involved in the scene um, playing in bands and. Did you all go to shows together early on? Who was the first punk in the household? That's a good question. So, so, so Mike, Mike's a couple of years younger than me, but you know, going, going back is, it's going to be, you'll have to ask him at some point. So I think it might be a toss up because certainly like, like earlier on, I think, cause I, I had, I had friends who had older, older brothers, older sisters who were kind of into alternative music, even back in the late seventies. And so I think I, would already gotten a taste of, I guess what would have passed for alternative music, like, like older kids who were into Devo or into like Adam and the Ants or into like, like 77 punk stuff like Squeeze or Joe Jackson. And so I think, I think that I had like gotten a hint that there was something else going on besides, you know, like, mainstream you know arena band rock in the late 70s early 80s <clears throat> but i almost think i i, w- I would actually say that the first piece of punk media that came the authentic punk media that came into our house was my brother somewhere got a cassette copy of the black flag my war record 
And that, that was definitely a turning point. I would assume probably for both of us. I, I actually, I think I remember a summer when we weren't state, I think we, we, I think we were up like around Tahoe for a couple of weeks and I think we had three tapes and I think it was the B-52's Wild Planet. It was three tapes. It was B-52's Wild Planet, the Split Ends, True Colors album, and Black Flag's My War. And so those three cassette tapes, we like, we must have, we, and we had one boom box between us. And so I think that that summer, and that must have been, I'll bet 83, was just a constant rotation of those three tapes. So that's a, that, yeah, that's a power rotation. right? It's not, there, yeah, right? it's not bad <laughs> as far as like early, 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 early musical uh, purchases and influences go. And then, so for me after that, it was probably, you know, a pretty easy slide into like, uh, like getting the Reagan youth album, getting the first DRI record, getting some, you know, getting Fang stuff. And, um, and so, so I think that maybe where the difference comes in is that I think my brother really quickly kind of got into like a little bit more of the sort of speed metal thrash metal stuff. And I got more into, you know, hardcore and punk. Yeah. So, uh, talk about, wait, so you were punk first. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I, I was. I thought that whole five minute answer, Josh, was a way of avoiding answering the question "Who came first? All right, you, all right, we'll let, let it go. Gotta, we'll let it go. Yeah, you, you got to give me a, some opportunities to be diplomatic when we have these conversations. Yeah, we don't want to start a sibling rivalry. Yeah, over the yeah, or, or or make Mike answer the question. <laughs> I will ask. I'll, I will ask him that actually. Um, so. You, I mean, you grew up in Benicia. You're from mm. Benicia. Your your mom's still there. Mike's still mm. there. <clears throat> what was it like being that punk kid in Benicia? I mean, you were. I mean, from from my understanding, and this is before we met. So mm. you were like already involved in anti fascist, uh, mm. like anti racist uh, protests. Uh, you were you were like I don't know. I think I heard rumors about a zine coming out of there. You were skateboarding the Venetia skate park was there. Like there was a lot of stuff that you were involved in and you guys were even putting on shows at the community center. So what was that? What was it like? I mean, you're, you're basically in a small town that's adjacent to these massive punk scenes. Right. Yeah. It, it is weird that when you put it that way, Kevin, it seems like there's like a ton of stuff going on and it was a town of what, you know, 12,000, yeah. 15,000 people. You know, I, I think I've heard Paul say, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give Paul credit for this, that maybe there was actually something about us being just isolated enough from Berkeley and Oakland that maybe it forced us to build our own little mini infrastructure outside of those sort of scene centers. And, but, okay, so, so maybe, that, maybe that's part of it, sort of having that little bit of geographic difference forces you as much as you, you know, as much as you can, you're connected with, with those bigger urban scenes. And I know, even though Paul and I were going to high school together, I didn't really recognize him until I saw him at a show. And then I think we kind of started like meeting each other at school. But I think that there's something also where we were getting connected with those bigger urban scenes, but also, and, and maybe, I don't know if like Petaluma or Santa Rosa might have been similar. But it wasn't just the punk kids. I think that there was, because it was basically at Benicia High, it was like the rockers and the jocks and everybody else. You know, we're talking like what, 80, you know, 83, 84-ish. Yeah, it's like drama kids. uh... (laughs) Yeah. And and so so for us, it maybe, I don't know, Josh, I don't know if it was like the drama kids so much, although I I think that now that you're making me think about it, there probably were some drama kids who kind of got like in our group, but I remember it being like the new wave kids, the ska kids, the punker kids, and even some of like the Hesher, like thrash metal kids would all, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say had everything in common, but maybe had enough in common by not being part of those two dominant groups that maybe that's where you kind of build a larger sense of community outside of those big urban communities where maybe you'd have, it's not like there was a bunch of punks in San Francisco either, but, but maybe, you know, you're talking about. Yeah, having, definitely. Cause yeah. Kevin, there was like disciples of Ed and like that stuff going on. Right. Like what, like, which wasn't exactly punk, but weird and yeah. counterculture. Um, well, I think yeah. the first, 
if we talk about Santa Rosa, I mean, if you're talking about punk bands, there was like the precursors to like, say like victims family, like skirt mm-hmm. boys, which was Larry Boothroyd from victims family in that sort of same time frame. So, cause those guys graduated from Santa Rosa high school a few years ahead of me and were victims family were already playing shows with like the dead Kennedys and like, Mm. I don't know, like what, 85, Mm -hmm. like way early, like for for that whole like next kind of wave of punk in, in the, um, in the Bay area. But we, we, we had more people, you know, Santa Rosa is a town of, you know, it was, when I was young, it was, it was about a hundred thousand people. So, Mm. you know, you, you, we had more to draw from and there was definitely crossover there between like the, the crossover kind of metal stuff. There was bands mm-hmm. that were playing really hard music, like Capitalist Casualties, you know, who went on to be kind of a, like a legendary band in the you know, in that, in that scene. Schizo was around. Yeah. And that was a whole nother thing. But then there was like the bands that you mentioned, like Disciples of Ed and this whole sort of funk influence. And then you had Victim's Family who kind of stood alone as their own, mm-hmm. like, I mean, probably some three of the best musicians all the way through the tenure of that band, every single drummer and Ralph and Larry that I've ever seen play on a stage. I mean, those guys are just bananas. They're, they're like unbelievably (laughs) good, good, good musicians. And then you, then we had, you know, bands like, uh, like, uh, nuisance and ground round Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. you know, that ended up on lookout records. So we definitely had, and Santa Rosa was some weird draw for like, for like Humboldt County for some reason. And, and I probably because of Sonoma state, which is really how you and I met um, became friends. I shouldn't say we met there because we probably met years before you got to Sonoma state, just going to Gilman street and bumped into each other. But you know, that draw of Sonoma state really solidified sort of its own scene in Mm -hmm. in Sonoma County. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think, the difference between that and like a Benicia is there wasn't like a college to go to in Benicia right. where where you were getting a new blood all the time. It was like basically whoever ended up moving to that town. And by the time you guys were into punk, the glory days of like the, you know, the docks and the, and the shipbuilding yards were gone. Yeah. You know? you know, so it was just a very, it was like almost like a, you know, it was just like a really small town that was adjacent to bigger cities, but like, yeah. Fuck, I saw some amazing shows <laughs> at the Venetia Community Center, you know, and like my brother and all his friends would get in the in the we'd pile in the car and drive down to the Venetia skate park and they would mm-hmm. skate there for hours, you know. So it just it had its own unique kind of draw. Yeah. Check check this out though. You know, what one, one thing that I, like a word that I really like that Josh uses like weirdness when you're talking about disciples of bed. <laughs> and may, maybe maybe there's a certain sort of openness for different kinds of kids to get together. Like what if in bigger cities, maybe there's already these sort of preset groups to sort of fall into. And maybe what you're making me think about is maybe since Benicia didn't have those things happening already, was there a little bit more ability for us? Not, not that everything that came out of that was original and wonderful. Right. But maybe there was at least some like fertile ground for, different things to build out of the possibilities that we could build on our own. And the reason why I was thinking about that, Kevin was I don't, and again, I'll just ask you for, for your experiences with this, but maybe because we were right outside the sort of like, or right inside the extent of the radio reach of San Francisco. As soon as Josh thought, said that, like, like weirdness, I was thinking about accessing that. Do you remember that radio station, the quake, their format was called rock yeah, of the eighties. Yeah. And Suddenly that was making me think, oh, that's the first place I heard like institutionalized by, by suicidal tendencies. But I also heard all this like two-tone stuff and a lot of it like political stuff, like the special AKA's free Nelson Mandela or like Rhoda Dakar's uh, song, The Boiler, which is about date rape. And it's like, maybe there was something about being just proximate enough to San Francisco where you have this sort of access to more eclectic culture, but you don't have any place to experience it unless you build it yourself, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It totally does. And so, yes, maybe I got to give credit to the quake for also giving me you know, <laughs> a, like a, a broader palette of things to, you know, listen to and think about. Oh my God. I loved the quake when I was a kid. Yeah. I thought it was like the coolest thing and I could barely yeah, you know, get we, it we, in Santa Rosa. We used to, we used to cut school and get on that little commuter bus and get down to San Francisco and get there just in time for the last hour of the Alex Bennett morning show. Oh, nice. Nice. 
Yeah, I, I wonder what Alex Bennett. That's a name I haven't heard in a long time. That was like my favorite thing in the mornings. So yeah, yeah. You're, I mean, so a lot happened though. You like I said, you guys were doing your own thing in in Benicia. There was a good little scene there that kind of was getting bands to come play as well. And you were starting to form bands and talk a little bit about what that was like in the early days, right. especially being so adjacent to this like cultural icon, you know, of Gilman street. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that that's got to also fit into the, the, I mean, do you want to call it the, like the Benicia ethos, which is you build it where you find it. Right. And, and maybe, maybe it's something about, you know, me and Scott and Paul feeling like, I, I think in terms of, even though the, the sort of alternative kids culture was maybe broader than that, I feel like me, Scott and Paul were the ones who were like actively seeking it out, like going to Berkeley or San Francisco as much as we could. And you going wanted to, show, to be in the mix and you needed I, a band to get in the mix. Well, and, and that, that's certainly, that's certainly part of it. And I, I would say, you know, Josh, I was, I think that, Paul and Scott are probably like way more outgoing guys than I am. And so maybe that was the missing link for me was I loved going to shows. I loved like, you know, being, I wouldn't say passively, but maybe not, not, not as actively as I would have liked part of the punk scene. And maybe building that first band with Scott and Paul was almost like taking hold of their, their charisma and all of our common excitement about what was going on in the punk scene and trying to build our own way of getting, yeah, sort of getting, entree to it if that makes sense mm-hmm. yep yeah well and so you you guys started that that the first band together um poultry magic poultry magic yeah um and then you i mean did you play gilman with that band yeah yeah so we i think we played i probably should have looked this up before we before the mics heated up but i think <laughs> i think we played our first show at Gilman, like around April of 87. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Poultry Magic? Yes. Okay. I, I think the backstory of that one was it was some kind of product that was in Scott's mom's spice cabinet. And it just it tickled <laughs> it tickled Paul and Scott enough that they were like, that that's it. Yeah, that, that sounds like a Paul and Scott inside joke right there. Those two guys. <laughs> well, what was your first band's name, by the way, Mr. Judgy band name over there. Lay, lay a few of those out, Joshua. Oh, you're talking about milk fat? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. You, so, you, look, you, you find you find you find them where they lay, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I think so. What's interesting to me is then all of a sudden you're you're like immersed in this Gilman, um, yeah, culture as well, and it, it, I mean. Basically, you went from, you know, and and you all are still doing, we're still doing shows up in Benicia and people were sort of moving in and out of there. And, you know, I know there was like, uh, there was, I believe, that, wasn't there a punk house there at one point that people kind of, it kind yeah, of like lots that, of people came and went? And, and that was actually, and kind of going back to that weirdness that Josh talked about, that's probably going to be my, my touchstone for the rest of our conversation <laughs> is that my first access to alternative culture and you know what? You know what? I think part of this might have actually been connected to Benicia having like an old artsy hippie community there too, yeah, because there's a big glass, sure. there's a big sort of like glass studio uh, culture out there. And so pretty early on, they had like espresso bars and kind of like hippie cafes. And so I started, who knows how I fell in, into that at first, but I started meeting people there. And yeah, Kevin, you're right. That, a lot of the people I met were sort of connected to this, I guess for all intents and purposes, like this kind of like, you know, uh, hippie squat yeah. that was down by the water. And this is where I met the the people who took me to my first punk shows. So I, yeah, there, there was, there was this sort of like alternative culture that had already been around and maybe what, what wound up happening is that, yeah, then it builds into like, a punk house that Paul and Aaron and Elliot started in what eighty nine, maybe. That's the one. And he that wrote became about, the place, right? Yes. Because yeah. Like, so that, that would became, be something. Be long before I knew where Benicia was, I knew it uh, from that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so Aaron, and then Aaron wrote after, extensively about it. Yeah, and then after that, it was like this three room kind of shack out in by the old old uh, 
foundry. Right. And gradually, yeah, you're right. It became this sort of like cultural center of the little Benicia scene. So there was a bunch of bands that practiced there and people sort of like, like kept coming through that, that just little space. Yeah. I mean, cause that's where, so um, let's jump forward a little bit, just, you know, both in, in, you know, in, in sure. honor of time and, but um, so you started another band there that ended up on Lookout Records and was did a lot of touring, put out a lot of music, and you were the primary mm. songwriter for Monsula. And um that was that was basically a bunch of Benicia people as well, because then you now you've got Bill involved. Um and mm-hmm. so talk a little bit about that how that formed because wasn't your brother also your first drummer in that band? Yeah, yeah. That was that was a weird situation where I think it came out of a bunch of people jamming actually in Scott Pelkey's old house. Um, yeah, yeah I, I would, I would actually say going back to the beginnings of Monsoula, that there was probably at least two drummers, like at least my brother and Scott, at least two bass players, Mike Talbot and Paul Curran. And I think me and a couple other people noodling around on guitar, which include, I think Scott would, Scott Pelkey would play guitar occasionally. And it was one of those things which maybe, maybe we started like locking in in a certain way, but it gradually formed into that band. Or I don't know, is organic the right word, but some, something happened where maybe some people dropped out. Oh, you know, for instance, so, so Paul Curran started playing bass for a crim shrine. And so I'll bet you that, you know, helped him slide away. And, and yeah, right. So it kind of sort of settled into that first formation, which was my brother, a guy named Todd Sweatfield from Vallejo, who played bass, and then me on guitar and Paul singing. Right. And then it developed. Yeah, into- and even even with that lineup, I think we we played our first show at Gilman with that lineup. Nice. And where did where did the name Monsula come from? Just out of curiosity. I I think that's another another one of those sort of like like. Legends is probably better than reality stories, but <laughs> but I think that the story tracks tracks back to a guy that Paul used to jam with, who also kind of was there at the beginning of the band. Who I want to say it was a bad tr- translation of something Japanese that he heard at one point, and that's that's about the, all I know. Right. It, well, it does roll off the tongue, though, right? So whatever the origin story is, it's, it's a it does it does it's got so, it's got a good sort of tonality to it. Yeah. And so your first record on, on lookout, your first seven inch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, was, I mean, it's classic number one. It's a, just a, I think like song over song, it's amazing. Um, and then, so it feels like you guys started to develop your own sound at that point whatever the precursors were to that, but it was like mm-hmm. the foundation for what was going to come later. So like, mm-hmm. how did you start making? Cause you, I mean, you're writing music at that point that you're the guy. I mean, you're, it's basically you're, you're, you've, you've kind of started to take over songwriting duties for that band. I mean that, and I know most of the, the full length records were, were, was your material. And so kind of, how did you start forming that, that, that sound and sort of, getting to where you were happy with the way the band was going. Cause you know, we played music together and, and I know that like you're, you're more self-critical than probably anyone I've ever played with. So, I mean, it, how, how did you kind of <laughs> develop that to get into the studio with it? And I right. say that in the nicest way. God, it's not a, you know. no, no, I'm, I'm taking, I'm taking it in the nicest way because it sounds like, like uh, at least here you tell it, the finished products came out, came out. Okay. Uh, because I would actually oh, whoa, say whoa, that, whoa, whoa, yes, whoa, you know, <laughs> no, 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 no. Monsula. Oh, wait, what? When I, <laughs> Monsula was like huge to us, to me, to my friends. Like we okay. fucking loved Monsula. It wasn't like, okay. It okay. Was I'm blushing. Rad as you guys fuck. are too, so, right. And so this, this is the, this is the thing, right? Is that Kevin knows me so well that he knows that there's a difference between how other people um, hear what we did and like how I guess like maybe I have this underlying and maybe this goes with being an academic too. this sort of like underlying like feeling of inadequacy or self-loathing that never that never lets me fully enjoy the thing I'm doing um, 
But but I think going back to that seven inch cabin, I think that that's a really good time to look at because that's actually two different bands. The the one the one side that I think really does sound more like East Bay punk is me, my brother Paul Curran on bass and Paul Lee singing. It's also a band that had entirely different equipment. Right. So this is still where you know I, I think I, I think I'm still playing out of a bass amp with a distortion pedal. Um. And then by the time that, by the time, and I think that we recorded that one with our own money. And then by the time like Lookout came out into the picture, Bill Schneider had started playing bass and Scott Pelkey had started playing drums and I had bought a Marshall and an SG. Yeah. So all of a sudden, and maybe, maybe Josh and I were joking before the mic seated up about like by, you know, by like investing in technology, but maybe this is one of those places where having everybody invest in better instruments allowed us to play like, you know, have a bigger sound, like pursue this sort of like, I guess, bigger palette or a more rock sound that you hear on. And I think, I think also like probably if I, if this makes sense, like a more aggressive sound that's on the second half of that record, maybe that's the thing we started pursuing is like a more, I don't know. It's not like it's not like the early stuff wasn't as punk as we could make it, but maybe maybe what we did, maybe what happened was we found like a group of people that allowed us sort of like amp like both literally and figuratively amplify that thing right. that we were looking for in well, the earlier I mean, times. Bill's tone and Scott is a fucking beast. I mean, yes. just I mean he is just a he's a, a hard head, hitter, hard like, and you know I hit pretty hard, but he's yeah. a, he's a monster. I mean. <laughs> And, uh, and, but Bill has a really, really very specific mm. bass tone and you can hear it in Sawhorse and you can hear it in Pinhead Gunpowder and it's just his tone, you know? And I, I think mm-hmm. that, that adding that rhythm section and right. obviously no offense to Paul or, or, or Mikey, cause they're both their own, you know, and Mike, Mike's been playing drums for the reunions and they're, they're, they're just different kinds of players, you know? And, but when you guys got through that second side of that record and into, into, you know, the first LP um, structure, it is just the sound really came together. Structure is a record that I've never gotten sick of, by the way. And, and it's one of those ones that I hold on to my vinyl copy of. And I just love that. I fucking love that record. I love that record. And I, I just think you you would come to a place with your songwriting too that where you'd really, you know, you'd kind of like you'd sand it off the rough edges, and you know, and as you continue to write, it just has gotten to be more. Like I could probably listen to any band you play and be like, "Yep, that's Chuck right there." Even bass with Siren. I mean, I was like, "That's Chuck," you know. Uh, so I yeah. I really appreciate it. I think Dan O'Mahony said something like that too. Like when we, we first started hanging out and we tried playing music together, I really, it was really kind to hear that there's, there's a sort of, what do you call it? Like a signature sound or something, but you know, like, like as you're, as you're sort of pointing that, pointing that out about the, the relationship between me and Bill and Scott, I think there was also this, what's going on in the punk scene more generally is that I think, especially with that sort of like, revolution summer and post-revolution summer dc hardcore those guys had figured out how to make amazing sounding record punk records and so i think about like like the the later government issue stuff that jay robbins played on is like amazingly fully produced they it sounds big right and and i think that there's something that started happening especially with those dc hardcore records in the what mid like mid to late 80s that maybe gave us like a target to shoot for is like, we could make records that sound that good too. So I think especially like thinking about a hard hitter, I'd also look, look at, look to government issue for that too. Peter Moffat from government issue, him and Jay Robbins were also this pummeling rhythm section. Yeah. Did, did you think about that consciously while you guys were recording? Were you saying we want to make a good recording and how do we do that? And who else has done that? Like that, that seems very like mature for that age. I know I was thinking about it. I don't know if I knew how to articulate it, but I definitely knew as much as I will, I will never, (laughs) uh, Kevin and I have talked about this sort of like uh, one of our iconic shared records, I think is the neurosis aberration seven inch. And it sounds like shit. It is one of the worst produced records, but it is a, it's, it's beautiful, right? The songs are so amazing. The two songs that are on that record are so amazing. 
and almost like the rawness is part of the beauty of it. And think back to like, like the Crimp Shrine demo tape is just like a wall of feedback. Yeah, but yeah, Crimp Shrine's yeah. probably my, the, my favorite of the Gilman era bands. And so it's not like I didn't love that sort of like the rawness of um, the, the sort of like East Bay punk sound. But I think that may, and so maybe Joshua, if I, if I could, maybe what we've tried to find was a way to have that sort of like that rawness, that, that lack, that almost lack of self-consciousness that the East Bay punk sound had, but also have that very self-conscious, you want to sound big and full and, you know, really impactful. And so maybe that was the thing is like, even if we couldn't articulate it at the time and maybe Kevin, this is the thing that the structure album might be the, what gets closest to that is finding a balance between those two. Right. You know, well, sensibilities. I think that's part of the reason I, I, I like that record too, because it also is a snapshot into a time in my life as well, you know? So you have certain records that you listen to and that you're just like, no matter how far away that time is, from now, it just is like, it kind of snaps you back in a way that's, and I'm not like a super nostalgic guy. I I like talking about this (laughs) stuff because I want to, I want to preserve the history. And I think it's important to do so. I am, you know, I'm, I'm sincere. And I'm also like, I can be like a little bit, you know, cheesy because I, you know, I I just get, I get emotional about things, but it's not necessarily that I'm longing for the day. It's more like, you know, I just love, there's certain records that I just love and you can't really mention that record and what, uh, you know, a certain, uh, studio and producer did for the sound Mm -hmm. at that time. And we're, you know, dancing dog studios really, when they started upgrading equipment and doing more, you know, having a better setup for recording, it really changed how Mm -hmm. a lot of those lookout records sound. And he was, you know, Kevin was the guy, I mean, you know, he, Kevin army recorded, you know, probably what at that point, maybe like 99% of the records on oh, Lookout. Yeah. yeah definitely. And he, he just was at a point in his, his career where he was growing in his understanding of how to capture punk bands and especially ones that needed to have that live feel to them, you mm-hmm. know? And so I think we can't really mention that record without mentioning him in his studio because all of us recorded there at different times. You know, I remember the first time meeting him, I was so nervous. We were recording for, uh, for a lookout comp and I was, and this is when I was in, in engage. And I was just like, this guy is like a, a, he's like a musical God to me. I mean, he's recorded pretty much all of my favorite records for the last five years. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think just throwing that out there too, you guys had a partner to work with and he, he was, he was a, he was easy to work with, but he was a kind of a merciless, like sound guy he just wanted everything to be correct the way that it was supposed to sound it's true right and and you you have to have somebody especially when you're kids you know i mean what structure was like we we, we must recorded that in 90 so i would have been 20 21 you know that you got to have somebody who's there to teach you and i don't i don't want to take this in a direction you guys want to don't want to hear yet but there's got to, there's got to be something to be said about, I guess it, it, it doesn't happen. And so even like songwriting with Monsula, I will say also, Kevin, that when I get nostalgic about playing, like I often think back to with working with Bill is I think we practiced so much together that I think that mm-hmm. we got to a point where we could almost like look at each other and write a song. Like, like right. I might come with, come with something, but I, I think that one, one of the mythologies about about punk rock is is this this DIY notion, and, and not not that it doesn't work to a certain extent, but I think some people take it literally, and I don't think it's true. I think that the, these these moments, whether it's Gilman or a good record, emerge from doing it together, right? So that so the the lookout records don't 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 happen without somebody like Kevin there to teach a bunch of young bands like. What do you do in the studio and what do you do in the studio to make a record when you only have $1,200 to, to spend on it? Yep. You know, it really, it really, the, all of these things that you're, we're talking about can't happen without this, these intense collaborations. I, I totally agreed. I mean, I, and I've talked about this on the show a bunch of times, like 
I don't necessarily, I'm not a proponent of the idea of like bootstraps. I don't think that that's actually a yeah. real thing. If you don't have any, if you have no support and no help, <laughs> good luck, you know? And the, the biggest question though, and this is something that is coming out of your last statement and we, you know, we take these in any direction they go, but you know, I think apply that going forward to your life when you've got mm. situations in your life now where you, where you've got like a certain budget or you've got an amount of time, a finite amount of time you can spend on something. Let's take, for example, dealing with the city of Salt Lake when you're trying to do a new structure on, on your, you know, on your property. It's like, right. You right. figure out ways to do it. And I think punk rock is the training ground for that. For a lot of us is like, we figure out how to fucking work the system and get what we need. Mm-hmm in ways that are not conniving, but like genuine, but also like incredibly resourceful, you know? And that's the thing Mm -hmm. that I, that I, that I, when I, when I think about all the things I learned from punk, the biggest one is resourcefulness. Like I could get together a group (laughs) of friends in an hour and we could be at a protest or a show. You know what I mean? Let's do it. Mm -hmm. We'll have banners made. We're ready to go, (laughs) you know? And if we don't have shirts to bring to play the show, we're going to bring our, our, our screen and we're going to print them right there on the spot, you know? And it's, so it's, it's like, right. Right. I'm sorry. After you, please. I'm sorry. Finish your thought. No, that, that was it. Okay. Sorry. I was just like, you know, every time you say something, it's like, you know, I get all these images. I want to yes. And everything you're saying, or (laughs) like Crim Shrine did when they were starting off, make a stencil and buy two cans of spray paint and just stencil the shirt that whoever, Cecil, the shirts that people were already wearing, right? That you're so right that I don't, I don't, and I don't want to say that there's something that's absolutely unique about the Bay Area punk scene, but there's certainly something that's unique in the sense that, I mean, even like go back to, go back to the early zines like Search and Destroy that started what in 77 or 78, I think. You can always see this intellectualism or this ability to be like self reflective about what's happening creatively. You know, what it's not just it's not just what are the bands doing, but what are people thinking? Like, what does the culture look like and how does the culture mm-hmm. inform the thing that's happening on stage? That's that's our inheritance. I think, Kevin, is that we were we we didn't we didn't. I hope I, we the, this is like, you know, I'll, I'll say we, but I probably just mean me, me and whoever else wants to identify with this. It's like I really I, I, I think I figured out really quickly that the shows were amazing. Like and seeing these bands, like just totally like go out of control and play this amazing music was one thing for sure. But it was also about what was going on in this broader sense. And I started like getting hit to, Oh, like the farm is providing free food or like low cost. Mm-hmm. Like you, right. you can get like, you know, baked beans and bread for 50 cents or something. And there are these info tables where you can learn about politics and so, you know, like one of the things you mentioned was I, I do a lot of work with LGBTQ literature and culture. And the first time I saw an ACT UP lit table was going to actually was going to a Victim Stanley No Means No show at the commotion in 88. Mm-hmm. And so maybe our resourcefulness, again, comes out of like all these good examples that we had since we were kids, you know, maybe it came out of the way that the, even like the Bay Area punk scene had already sort of connected with you know, older hippies, like the farm definitely came out of hippie culture, uh, gay activism. Like I think about Tom Jennings starting homo core out of Gilman street. And so we had, mm-hmm. we had these older people to show us, you know, examples of what co- community organizing looked like. And they found a way to make the punk scene connect to it and amplify it in these really amazing ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. You say inheritance. I like that word because uh, I was like the next generation, right? Like I started going to shows in mm. 92 and at my first band, Milk Fat, as Kevin pointed out, <laughs> uh, we made t-shirts by bringing spray paint to shows and a stencil, right? And how do we know how to do that? Because there's like this oral cloud that hangs over punk that like carries these things forward. So it's DIY and that we made our own t-shirts, but that was knowledge transfer happened at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So we're like cruising through this thing. I mean, we're, (laughs) I'd like to talk a little bit about academia and, you know, I, I mentioned siren earlier because you played in, you played in siren. I, and I, you know, that band was incredibly impactful in my life for a variety of reasons. Um, but 
you know, primarily it built friendships that are lifelong for me. And, you know, mm-hmm. like we were already friends before that. I asked you to join that band because I was like, basically I just got, I didn't want to play with people I didn't like at that point. I was like kind of done with the whole idea of like finding players because they were good, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and also you're good. <laughs> so oh, that was, okay. the, I thought it was like, that, no, nobody seeks me out because of talent, but rather that was, like, that was passion. That, I think that, that, that was, was amazing. That was the bonus. So, um, <laughs> but you know, the, you know, and I actually just got a flyer from the show that you were on when we played with a veil, I think down at Jerry's pizza and, in, in uh, Bakersfield. Cause didn't we, didn't you take oh. one of the trips down South with us? Awesome. Yeah. So someone sent me that flyer. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So now I have it. So, but, um, I think the, you know, jumping to the other part of your life that was going on then is you were working as a chef and putting yourself through school, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Mm -hmm. first at Sonoma state. And then you kind of found this love for academia, which, you know, is I've noticed with a lot of, especially songwriters in the punk community, you know, we've got, you know, like, you know, Blake and Chris from jawbreaker and Adam that all went to school and those two guys got advanced degrees. And, um, you know, and then we've got, you know, Milo and, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, Greg Graffin. And I mean, there's just all, a lot of people within the punk community that were attracted to academia for different reasons. And I I don't know if we've ever talked Mm -hmm. about why that was the thing you landed on. I mean, I think I've like talked to you about probably every other aspect of your life, but I've never been like, well, why did you end up as, as a, you know, a tenured professor in Utah, like, so what, yeah. what was it, what was attractive about you about this life, which is also incredibly competitive, I must point out, um, that kind of drew you into it. Yeah, look, and I, I didn't, I didn't know how, how competitive it was when I went in. And it, it's interesting, Kevin, it's like, I definitely went into, I went into academia, like pretty, uh, innocent and wide-eyed which might be a good like punk rock way of approaching things right it's like not having a lot of context just diving in and seeing seeing what happens but you know it's funny that you you had mentioned sonoma state earlier and and you know probably what hooked us back up was that i think brian and i actually brian zero and i actually took a class together because he was also an english major at sonoma state and so i had either connected with or reconnected or more deeply connected with you know dan kirby Kylie Henner from Nuisance was going to Sonoma State at the time. Brian was there. And so th- there was this group of like Sonoma County punks that I could sort of hook up with. And then it's opened me up to a whole new community venues that maybe I played at, but never really hung out at. And so, so there was that part of it, but there was also that I suddenly, I suddenly found the thing I was passionate about that I think I had kind of been, you know, I, you know, semi-seriously trying to get through college, but it wasn't until I became an English major and started taking class. So I, I thought that like, like Brian, I thought that I was going to be a high school teacher until I got into a couple of classes that were more sort of, you know, experimental literature, also getting my first taste of like taking uh, critical theory classes, which are the more interpretive side of the English field. And having having professors who wanted to push me and like make me do things that I didn't know I could do or probably didn't want to do at the time, and rather than pushing back against that, I just jumped in full like full bore. But it was so late at that point that it took it took a lot of resetting. And by the time I got to Purdue, which ironically is also where Chris wound up for his PhD, so Chris Bauermeister and I like actually reconnect it's a small punk rock world right so we'd actually reconnected when he went to purdue for his phd and i was i feel like we talked about that during his his episode too this definitely came up before you and i have certainly talked about it but so 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 i'll I'll try to like uh take a quick run through this and then almost not knowing how i was doing it i i applied to grad school and got into a couple places and got got paid to go but even even then, what I realized, Kevin, was I was I was definitely out of my out of my depth when it, when I got got there because what I realized was I wasn't the only person, but I was one of the very small number of people who had come up through community college and the state university who I had never been to a research university before. I didn't know what a library looked like, and so you've been to Sonoma State, right? So I, I didn't I didn't know what like 
like a fully resourced research university look like. And so everybody else, I felt like already, and maybe part of this is faking it until you make it, but I think part of this is actually true that you come out of a different sort of legacy or a different sort of, you, you come with a different sort of pedigree and you already kind of know what you're doing when you get there. And so that was the sort of like traumatic thing for me was this sort of moment of transition where I really had to figure out like how to do that thing in order to, you know, even become competitive to get to that, you know, the brass ring of getting a tenure track job at the end of it. So I, that's like the one minute version. And I guess what? I just got lucky enough to, once I got to the PhD program, I had some bad experiences for sure, but I, I finally, like I, I found the people who could, again, like Kevin Army when, when we were, you know, younger, found the people who could mentor me and show me the things that I was missing and teach me how to be the person that, you know, at least they thought I could be. And hopefully I've done some, some work to becoming. Well, you certainly have, obviously, because you've got that tenured position now. And I, I don't feel like we can go through that history because you there's there's more stops along that way. I mean, you were in Baltimore for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of places that you ended up. You came back to California at one point, I believe. Oh, my gosh. And, we have to do a part two. I mean, I know. we have to. Like, this is the this has gone by faster also, than any. I know. Part. It's crazy. We also can't really talk about all this moving and all the stuff that happened without mentioning Cindy as well, because she's been by your side and sure. you supported each other through this the whole way and you know people have a hard enough time staying married you know just with mm-hmm. being in the same house for <clears throat> 30 years together and you two have the like la- or, or, or the last eight months yeah <laughs> but you two have like traveled the country doing you know and in doing mm-hmm. your own kind of individual you know academic uh you know work and getting to where you needed to be but also support each other and all that and that's mm-hmm. a, you know for me that's a you know, I want to give both of you a lot of kudos for that. Cause I know I'm not an easy person to live with. You know, I know for me when I'm under stresses, I'm not always like Superman and great dad and, <laughs> you know, but you two have got, I mean, going through these kinds of programs at literally the same times <laughs> and you've, you've stuck it out and, and stayed together and have, have such an amazing respect and such a, like when I'm, when I'm, when I've been at your house at Salt Lake city, it's it's so nice to see the way that you two operate together and really understand each other. And it's, you know, it's, it's for me, it's, you know, quite honestly, it's, it's like, uh, I, I envision that kind of, you know, co-working, cohabitating love space for myself, you know, and the support as well. And I, you know, I will say it's an inspiration in many ways too. And it's, you know, you two have kind of like, you've toured the the world together in many ways. And, and, you know, I know touring too, ain't no, ain't no fun for right, being with other right. people. So, you know, I just wanted to throw a little shout out to her because I know she can be a very grounding person yeah, in your yeah. in your life. And, you know, you and I have very similar personalities in that we get super excited about stuff and we also get very down about things. So having that grounding person in our lives can be right. incredibly important. So shout out to Cindy, who, you know, I love. Yeah, so. I, 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 yeah. And, and I, I, I <laughs> let me, let me, let me second that shout out because, because you're right that I think that you know, for, for you and me, you know, maybe one, one of the good things that punk rock culture teaches us is how to like have like a shitload of drive and not really be worried about the sort of like the, the payoff, whether, right. you know, money or, or fame or whatever else that's, you know, certainly not going to come from most, most punkers. But, but I'll, I also, I also think that, you know, like, like our punk rock lives, like we can't do it ourselves. Or at least I know I I know I can't do it myself. And so without having somebody, yeah. And so Cindy and I had actually met each other. Talk talk about a smart person. She's younger than me, and she was working on her second master's degree when I was still struggling to finish college, right? But somehow you know things things clicked, and and she got a PhD in comparative literature. She got a tenure track job as well, and so maybe maybe part of that, Kevin, is I yeah, you're right. I saw. I saw so many relationships blow up when we were in grad school because, you know, a lot of times like partners didn't, couldn't like grok what the, what that person who was in grad school was doing because it's so weird, right? It's like, why are you spending all day at the library? Why don't you come home? And it's like this, you know, this constant, like constant need to keep working and keep producing without a lot of like concrete results to it. And so having somebody who had been there, who could, who was going through it at the same time and could understand it. That's a good person to come home to instead of the person who can't really 
and maybe in a lot of ways doesn't want to grapple with what you're up to. So I, I think I think you're right, but also uh, finding a partner who has a sunnier disposition is also really helpful. <laughs> right? is, I wasn't going to say that. But I'm all... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true though. Find, finding somebody who can balance out the sort of like the, the, the constant rage or the constant like need to, you know, get it out is really helpful as well. It's yeah. a lifesaver. Yep. So um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what you're up to now. I mean, you've got, you've already got one book out on um, and like entry sort of beginning level research that is a, is a course study. And it's one of the few in your field, which is pretty amazing. Um, and then you've, you're working on a second book now. So, you know, I mean, you took this, like what you just mentioned, this punk rock kind of drive and, and um, you know, these ethos and just like, you're basically like doing in your field of academia, like this is kind of the dream. You've got the tenured position and you're, you've got public published books that are being used for courses. So, you know, talk a little bit about the new book maybe, and then we can talk about the band a little bit and then probably wrap for tonight. And <laughs> we may have to do a part two. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be sitting on go when you're ready for that. Um, yeah. yeah, but okay. You're totally, you're totally right about, about the book project. I think I think it is is diabolical in a lot of ways, Kevin, because it looks it looks like it's just a textbook that teaches freshmen, you know, first second year students how to write for college. But I think that the diabolical part of it is probably actually so so based in giving students so giving students access to the thing that I didn't get when I started college because the resources weren't there. And so, so for, for most of, most of our history, there's been like a top tier of education and then everybody else. So the, you know, top 10 or so percent of people get to go to research universities like Cal or Stanford, and then everybody else goes to community college and state universities with very low resources, no libraries and, and stuff and, and so on. And so what the book does is it tries to bridge that sort of resource and class divide that's existed for so long between those top tier students and everybody else. Um, because it tries to give access to students who may have never been prepared for it or never thought about it before that same world of scholarship, that same world of critical thinking and research that the research university kids get to take for granted. And right. that unless they unless they fall into it almost by accident, like I did, it's almost like you can get through college and not realize that there's this whole world that was waiting for you to discover that was about thinking more critically or thinking more robustly or thinking more richly, which at the end of the day, isn't that exactly what punk rock gave me was a different mm -hmm. way of accessing the world. And so the ideal then is there's, there's sort of, is, is this making any sense? There's Perfect sort of sense. like diabolical political agenda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you just buy my book, it's not just going to teach you like a practical skill, like how to write for college, but hopefully it's also going to do that. Um, I think Jello Biafra said like literally unhinging the way people think that was the goal of the dead Kennedys. And I think that's probably my goal as well is Get, like opening their minds to this whole different thing that's not not about us telling them how to think, but giving them a whole different way of thinking and something that's worth thinking about. Nice. Nice. I mean, and you know, as yeah. uh as we both know, because we've worked together, your level of um attention to detail is without parallel. And it's like you know, working with Michael Jordan or something. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, really I'm and a I, so, big, tall guy. So, you know, I think the, the book for, especially for students, like you're talking about that are coming from maybe um, situations where they don't have access to these massive research libraries, mm -hmm. helping them sort of bridge that gap for themselves. You know, it's almost like a, you know, it's like almost like a statement on class to some degree as well. It's exactly that, right? And it's a, it's a way, hopefully, of making students aware of themselves and of their own position in a more empowering way. 
That I really, I, this is going to sound like horribly like traditionalist, right? But I really do think that education is this amazing vehicle for people to empower themselves, to empower themselves through thinking and through like a collective way of engaging with ideas that were, I think, entirely denied in our contemporary culture. Yeah, I would, I, I would totally agree with that. And I think bringing that into, you know, other areas of art and culture are important, you know? And so easy bridge for me, we're, we're, we have a project we, we are working on currently together, um, American Ma. And, um, you know, I will say that we both played in a lot of bands. We've both done our own fair share of touring and it's a really unique, and this is when we talk about, you know, grown up punk, it's a unique situation because literally none of us live in the same town. Now, mm. now that I've moved to Marin, I don't even live in the same town as the guy in San Francisco, you know? So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, there are four of us here in the, in sort of the general Bay area, you're in Salt Lake city. And I think when we decided to start this project, um, in 2017, 2016, maybe, um, I basically said, fuck it. And got a plane ticket and flew up there and we spent a weekend working on music together. And that's, that's right. kind of how that happened. And, you know, we've, it's difficult. We both know this and we both have our moments where we're like, Oh, God, is this worth it? You know, do I really have to tell you to play that same part again? You know, and, and, um, and the, 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 um, but you know, there's been a desire here and, and it, you know, the thing is, I don't think the, the that we've unkindled the fire. So, you know, hopefully as things mm. clear up with COVID, we got the, we got that little taste. We got to play a few shows and, and it was really you know, cool to see you guys play by the way, at Gilman. And yeah. I just want to piggyback on, on that work ethic thing, because I got the pleasure of playing with you guys for, I don't know, about a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way Chuck approached that band and the work ethic, like, we're going to keep, we're going to do it again. We're going to play it again. Like that stuff really taught me a lesson about what it takes to be good. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it was just really inspirational, I think, in a way to see like that kind of work, work ethic applied to a hobby, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's one of our, I think one of Chuck and my shared, uh, <laughs> shared character traits is that we don't treat anything like a hobby. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, yeah, that was actually how I would have jumped in on that one too. Is I know I know it's like the the oldest cliche in the world, but punk rock's got to be a way of life, right? Is that yeah? It's it's got to be. I mean, for me, I mean, I mean one th- one thing I think with the with the doing it again. So I'll I'll apologize to both of you guys having to endure being in a band with me. But <clears throat> I mean part part of part of that like doing that that doing it again is also you know because we're distanced, Kevin. I think that you also don't have that that luxury where Bill Schneider and I, I think we became such good co-writers, co-creators, is because we were practicing mm-hmm. three or four times a week. You know, we had our own space in San Francisco and so it was easy. Right. Yeah. We're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna work on it not not for three hours, you know, because this is our one shot at it this week or this month, right, when it comes down to what we can do. Right. But but knowing knowing that two days later we'll we'll take another crack at it, and so I do I do think that one of the hard things to deal with for me is it raises it you know uh, it raises the pressure to produce because I want so badly you know cause I, I want so badly because I love playing with you guys I want so badly to get to that place where like we're sharing it more, you know yeah, and so so maybe that's yeah. what that that. Well, that making the most of the practice time is, is because that's the way to get on stage and share it with everybody else. Totally. Well, and I I think too, both of us coming from bands, you know, are more sort of prolific bands that we were in. um, And you joined mine. um, Mm -hmm. Those bands, we, we played blistering sets, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was not for the faint of heart to be on stage with Monsoul or Siren. I'm not kidding. It was so like Adam and I practiced three or four days a week, every single week, mm-hmm. a couple of hours a day, no joke. And we did not, we weren't in there chatting. We were, we were working our asses mm-hmm. off and that's what we do when you come to town for American Ma. And I, that's the only way I want to play music. I don't, 
I'm not in it to half-ass anything in my life. I'm just, that's just not my way, you know? And, you know, we've, we've had, I've struggled with some of the stuff in this band because the music is challenging as hell. And, but I also like, I'm so fucking excited to play together again. Like I cannot wait for this shit to just st- please stop, right. you know? Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's a pleasure, you know, to have you as a friend too. And I think that's one of the biggest things out of punk rock that I've gotten is lifelong friendships, you know, and, and no matter where we, you and I have been out of touch for like probably close to a decade at a time, mm-hmm. you know, at one point. And, but every time we saw each other, it's like we picked right up where we left off. And, you know, I can't I can't even express to people how amazing that is to have that kind of friendship, you know. So, you know, it's been a pleasure having you on. I, I we've been waiting for this. I'd love to do a part two. I know we got to the end of your but there's a lot of stuff in the middle that we left off touring. You got a lot of stories. You know, I know there's been broken guitars in studios. There's all kinds of cool right. shit that we can talk about. So, um, you know, we we uh, we really appreciate you taking the time, and I cannot believe it took this long to get you on. So, let, you know, let, let's let let let's let's see what the audience thinks. Right? Let's, yeah. This has been great. I re- I really appreciate you guys like like giving me this amount of time, and let let's uh, let's do it again. I know we'll do it again in person when we see each other, but let's do it again. You know, this way too when we get a chance. Okay. For sure. For and sure. so um, as our listeners know, we give our Patreon money to Hospitality House SF until the end of this year and probably beyond, if I'm being honest, um, because we love them and they help individuals that are struggling with mental health issues and sobriety issues get on their feet through art and music, which we also love. Um, and they're a very small nonprofit in San Francisco. So every little bit helps. And, you know, we're just super happy Chuck, to have you on the show, we'll post all the details of, you know, the stuff you're up to, where to get your book. If you're interested in learning how to write, uh, for, for college level research, um, Hey man, no joke. And, uh, and obviously the band and the, in the past bands. And again, we just really appreciate you coming on, man. Thank you so much. Thanks you guys. Yeah. Thanks Chuck. This is the best episode ever. And thanks for listening everybody. 